Welcome to the One Question Podcast, brought to you by Wabi Sabi Studios. I'm your host, Michelle Cox, and I love having unlikely conversations on uncomfortable topics. It's a huge passion of mine, so much so that I wrote a few books a while back that challenge people's notion on living a life more unconventionally. This entire podcast stems around one question. If there was one topic you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? We can't help but compare ourselves to other people. It's a natural human response. And if we're looking at somebody else and thinking, oh, well, why are they okay and I'm not? You know, that's only going to add to our own distress and make that processing all the more difficult. Yana Firestone is a passion seeker with an insatiable curiosity and relentless pursuit of answers. She's dedicated most of her life to understanding, supporting and encouraging people to turn their tragedies into triumphs. As a therapist with a degree in psychology and a master's in counselling, Yana has spent the last 15 years working intensively with grief and trauma and with young people and their families. Her professional life has been a hearty balance between the intensity and depths of roles in child protection and at the Coroner's Court of Victoria, and as a therapist in private practice with professional athletes and in schools. Having lost her mother suddenly at the age of 21, Yana transformed her own tragedy into the driving force behind her success. Blending her therapeutic and creative skills provided the perfect platform to launch the Curious Life podcast in 2019. She also is the author of a new book, Embracing Change. Yana is such a warm yet super interesting woman. Her interest and care for others is so evident when you talk to her. She's such a beautiful person. I couldn't wait to get her on the show. Yana, it is so fabulous to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's a thrill to be here. Oh, it's going to be fun. I think we've got lots to chat about. So if there is one thing you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? I think the ongoing impact of grief is not really talked about as much as it should be. And we have a lot of things in place for people in the first moments and the first month or so after they lose somebody. But as you and I know, the grief evolves and changes and goes on for a lifetime. And I'm not sure that that really is talked about. I can't tell you how this kind of warms my heart actually to, for this being a topic that you want to talk about. I couldn't agree more. Why is this something that you are so passionate about though? What led to this and your kind of work in this sort of space? I come at grief from a personal and a professional perspective. So I lost my mum suddenly at the age of 21. And that was the biggest experience of grief. I'd, I'd had the sort of quote unquote expected experiences of grief along the way as a, as a young person, you know, losing grandparents and things in the sort of natural order of things, you know, you sort of expect that one day you might lose a grandparent. But I had no clue that I was going to lose my mum when I did. And Around that time in our family, we lost the entire top generation of our family. So it was my mum, it was my grandma, it was my great aunt, great uncle, another grandma, a 
cousin of my dad. A couple of years before, I'd lost a friend to suicide. And it was just this kind of relentless stream of funerals and loss and grief at a pretty young age. So I knew what grief was like as a person going through it. And then as a young psychology graduate, I started working in grief and trauma. So I was working in child protection where grief is an immense part of that work for the clients. I was working with victims of crime and then I was working at the coroner's court of Victoria, working very directly with sudden and unexpected death. So it was all around me for so many years of my life and really those formative years as a developing young adult, as a professional and in my own life. So I feel like I really know grief deeply and I know what it is like for so many people and how varied it is and how it's just different for every one of us. But at the same time, there's that that common thread that anyone who's lost someone significant you just have an understanding with each other that you know what you've each been through. I mean, it's fascinating and I'm sorry for all your losses. It's dreadful, especially at a young age, at 21, that's pretty horrendous. I lost my mum at 27 and that was bad enough, but um, my brother and sisters were like 14 and 16 and I always thought for them, you know, like it was so sad at me at 27, but at least I'd had sort of 10 years longer and et cetera. But when you were going through that, did you have much support around you? Like with people sort of, as you say, understanding grief and and you sort of touched on, you know, in those earlier parts, the early stages as such of, you know, the grieving process, you tend to get a lot more support, but people don't realise that sometimes for others, they need it like a little bit down the track. And that could be six months, it could be a year, it could be years. Did you get supported through that process or what kind of happened? Well, I had different levels of support at different times, as you say. I was living with my boyfriend at the time, who is no longer my partner. And part of this is the reason, you know, he wasn't very supportive. He just wanted me to be okay. And I remember one night, actually, I was in bed just crying and not okay. In the, We're talking about in the first month after losing mum. And he said something so outrageous to me, which he's now since apologised for, you know, many, many years later. But at the time he said, you know, how long is this going to go on for? When are you going to get over it? And, you know, he hadn't experienced grief. He didn't know what he was saying. I mean, he was only 21, 22 as well. Yes, that's interesting though. Yeah, just even on that, like just dig into that sort of space because I've, I've equally experienced a similar vein of stuff over time. But it's even if people lose, you know, like their children or they lose like pets or whatever and to that person and as I had to learn, that might be the most traumatic thing that's ever happened to them if they've never lost a person as such, but then they've lost their cat or their dog and how traumatic that is for them. That's as much as grief as someone else losing their own child, effectively, if they've got a reference point, you know, if that's all they know and how we, you know, we need to be more supportive in that regard. And is that part of the work you do about helping people to support others? Yeah, I think, you know, particularly my work at the coroner's court, because I worked with not only, you know, the loved ones of someone who had died suddenly, but it might also be a witness or a friend of or someone who was maybe a couple of steps removed. And sometimes that was about how to support 
the people going through the most acute grief. And I guess it's really tricky. You know, we put these timelines and expectations around moving forward. And I think part of that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross model of the five stages of grief, I think that was helpful to a degree, but I think it gives people an unrealistic expectation that we're supposed to move through different phases of grief to reach the end point where we're suddenly meant to be okay. It's beautiful you brought that up because I was going to ask you about that view because since, I mean, I wrote about that in my book, but I do feel, yeah, that, that like, and I think I kind of talked about that. I'll have to, I'll have to refresh and think about what I wrote. But <laughs> I do again. remember saying that it is so different for everyone. And as I kind of experienced the loss of my mother at 27 by breast cancer, and she was sick for quite a while, versus the loss of my father like 15 years later, and he died of a massive sort of heart attack. It was sudden. I was overseas when I got the news. And, you know, it was so different so different to what I'd experienced with mum. And my grieving process was incredibly different. And then, you know, to have cancer myself then a few years later and kind of the grieving process I went through about like grieving parts of my body and not being able to have children, again, like full-fledged horrific grief but so different. And so even us as a single human you know, we can experience grief really differently as well. And I think it's really important for people to understand that. That is such a a great point. And I'm so sorry that you've been through all of that. I think, you know, that's more than anyone should have to deal with. And unfortunately, you know, I guess death is the one inevitable part of life. So none of us are going to get away from it unscathed. Every single one of us is going to lose people that we love. And I think that's part of why this conversation is so important and sharing stories like yours and talking about how different the grief can be even within your own life for each different loss is so important because we can't help but compare ourselves to other people. Where It's a natural human response. And if we're looking at somebody else and thinking, oh, well, why are they okay and I'm not, you know, that's only going to add to our own distress and make that processing all the more difficult. So being aware that even within ourselves, the process can look completely different for each loss or each experience we go through. That's something that will help us move through the grief. I don't think we get over it, but we can move through it if we understand that it is ever evolving, it is going to keep changing. And, you know, like you were talking about in terms of grieving future losses, like not being able to have kids or in my case, you know, one of the ongoing hangovers of my grief is with my children and my mum not being here and her missing out on all of the things that, of course, you would want your mother to be there for. And my dad's got a beautiful partner who's a wonderful grandmother to the kids. So I don't want to take that away from her. But you know, when things get hard and I'm having a hard time with the kids or I'm, you know, overwhelmed and stressed and all of that, you want to just be able to turn to your mum and have that unwavering support and just to be able to rely on that and just know that that's there. So for me, I might not be sitting here crying every day and looking like I'm grieving, but there's always something, an undercurrent in the background. And I think that's something that you know, isn't really talked about that much that, yes, we know that grief is unique to each person and we know that it can evolve and change over time, 
But when we look like things are going okay, I think for the people that are supporting grieving people, it's important to understand that it's okay to check in even when things are looking like they're okay. Yeah, such a good point. A lot of people that I work with will talk about how there's so much support throughout the first three months. You're all working towards a common goal with, say, funeral arrangements, logistics, you know, all that sort of concrete planning stuff that comes along with the first few months. And then people sort of go back to their own lives and and that's fair enough. Everybody's, you know, got a life to live and the people in the inner circle of loss can sort of be left behind a little bit. And you might see your friend who comes out for dinner or drinks and they are appearing like they're okay and everything's sort of normal. And yes, they can talk about the loss and it's terrible and they're still feeling it. But are we really checking in with them or are we shying away from it because it's just easier to assume that they're okay because grief's hard to talk about. It's painful. You don't know what to do. You don't know what to say. You can't solve it for someone. You can't make it better. So I think there's kind of two things to think about there, checking in on people a long way down the track and being okay with not needing to solve it Mm. for somebody So true. Um, And I think that's where people kind of do come unstuck a bit. But there's also the element about not wanting to upset them. They're like, oh, they're they're actually tracking really well. If I bring it up and I talk about their mom or their dad or, you know, whomever whomever they've lost or any part of that grief, then it's going to revisit again for them. But to your point, we're always thinking about it. (laughs) And I think it's a beautiful book that I was given and she talks, and I can't remember off the top of my head now, but it was Motherless Daughters. And she referred to you know, your mother or your father, like they, you know, your mother, they grew you, you come from them. And so there is a hole in your heart when you lose your mother or father, or I imagine it would be the same if you lost your child and no one can ever fill that hole. No one can. Cause we kind of feel like, oh, we get through grief and, you know, it gets better. It's like a little sore that, you know, kind of after time it'll heal and everything will be okay. But with, you know, deep seated, like, grief that that is that closely connected to you that it's it's never going to go away and that's okay and I think I had to kind of learn that that was that was part of it and that no one was ever going to replace my mum and I was never going to get over this but I was just going to learn to live with it and once I'd sort of worked through that then I was like okay and I took the pressure off myself of going why are you crying like five years on? Like you should have your shit together by now, you know, like that whole self-deprecation <laughs> yeah. type stuff. Yeah. And learning to live with that yourself and be kinder to yourself through the grieving process because, again, I had no other, you know, yardsticks and stuff at that stage, you know. It's, um, I was still kind of learning how I was kind of, you know, dealing with my own grief. But I think it's important for people to know that, that 20 mum this year was 25 years and I was in Thailand with a girlfriend at a retreat and we did a little celebration, a health retreat. So we did a coconut, you know, like toast to mum. But 25 years on, I still think of her all the time, of course. I completely relate to that. You know, I think we just hit 19 years and it happened on the eve of his 18th birthday. So she's now been gone longer than he had her. Yeah. What happened to your mum? So she had a pulmonary embolism, which is basically a blood clot in the lung that can come from anywhere. We don't know. It could have been from travel. 
you know, that eventually worked its way up to her lungs or it can just be something that happens and it's not something that you know is going to happen. So it was very sudden and she was on life support for a few days and, you know, we were clinging to hope and obviously there just wasn't any. But it's amazing how those first 18 years, let's say, for my brother and the 21 for me were so big and powerful and she was such a huge presence and such a massive part of the fabric of our existence And now she's been gone longer than my brother had her. And that's just something that, I don't know, it just feels like a big deal because it doesn't feel possible that she could have been gone for so much longer than she was here. Yeah. So I completely understand what you mean about 25 years, like how is that possible? And, of course, you think about her every day because they're just such a big part of our life. Mm. And it's funny, I think as you get older, like now, because I'm older than my mother was when she died. And I started writing the book when I was 47, which is what the age. And I didn't realize it until I sat down and I thought, whoa, I'm the same age that my mum was. And I just can't imagine losing my life now. Like I've got so much I want to do. And, you know, her life was very different. She'd had four kids, you know, completely different life to mine. And it was wild to kind of reflect on that. But as I kind of progress now and, you know, as I get older and there's things I do and I'm like, oh, my God, I, that's my mum. Like that, <laughs> I look like her more now. You know, there's things that she, little funny quirks that she did. I was like, really? Is that genetic? How am I doing that? So it's funny like that I giggle about that type of stuff and I, you know, I actually still talk to my parents. I think that's one thing in terms of the grieving stuff as well. And, you know, you do whatever works for you is my advice to people. And I remember, you know, with mum, I talked to her often, but not as much as dad. Like dad and I had a really strong, I think, spiritual connection as well. And I had to, through the grieving process with dad, I wrote him a letter. I couldn't get out all the things because it was so sudden. Whereas I think, and that was the difference with mum, I was able to at least talk to her and tell her how I felt and all the things, you know, all those things that you bottle up and you hold. And interestingly, because of mum, I think my brothers and sisters and, you know, my dad, we had a much closer relationship and we never held back any of that stuff of telling each other we loved each other or, you know, anything that was on your mind that you were worried about or whatever. So when dad left, luckily there was nothing kind of left unsaid, but I still wrote him a letter that let a lot of that kind of anger out about him dying so suddenly. And, you know, it was the grief kind of that I was experiencing with that. So I encourage people to try those kind of elements, you know, talk to your parents or the, you know, the loved ones that you've lost. They can hear you. I believe that. So uh, they're there in the spiritual world. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I think writing is such a cathartic way to process your feelings and it can be a bit scary can't it like sitting down and thinking okay I'm going to write a letter and you can feel a bit self-conscious or a little bit like you're writing for an audience but getting those feelings out even just a stream of consciousness in journal style can be so helpful just to kind of like you say get the anger out because I think that's another thing that sort of gets overlooked a little bit is how closely linked anger is to sudden loss particularly because it does feel so unfair and you have every right to feel pissed off that that person's been ripped out of your life and your whole life is upside down because of it. So I love that. I think writing it out is, you know, a huge tip. And, again, even if you want to burn it, 
you know, I've kept a letter, but I've said to people, put it in a fire or burn it and just release it as well. If that makes you feel better, you know, no one has to see it. There's lots of different, you know, things that I think is to say, you know, well, you do whatever works for you. And if you, if you feel like a crazy nutter, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> like if anyone else knew that I was doing this, they would think I'm crazy. But yeah. yeah, you have to process it. And, you know, everyone's going to do that differently. And I think one of the things we also do is we tend to romanticize the people that have gone, the people that we've lost, which, you know, I completely understand. We want to remember the best parts of them. But I think it's important to also try to remember them as a whole person and not just the best bits or the Instagram highlight reel of memories, you know. And it's okay if they were not perfect and, you know, couldn't control their temper or were selfish or were mean or whatever at times. Like we have to fill in the whole picture, I think, because I think that's part of how we can get stuck sometimes is if we hold them up to this impossible standard and put them on a pedestal and it can be really hard to move past that if you've lost someone who becomes, you know, idyllic in their memory. Yeah, it's such a good point. Yeah. So what are the kind of things that you advise people? Like, I mean, so the whole kind of conversation is around, you know, the the grieving process does go on. And we've talked about how others can help, you know, someone that, that is close to them that's grieving. But for you going through it yourself and you're in the thick of it, as I was, and I, I remember it was a year on, it was mum's anniversary. And because I'm not the eldest of my family, but I'm always the organiser and the responsible one. So I organised all the funeral I made sure my brothers and sisters were fine. My dad was in a really bad state, so kind of looked after him, was trying to encourage them to see counselling, but my dad was so against it, which, you know, still there's further on I, I sort of one of the things I should have insisted because my brother and sister needed some, some support and there's stuff that they're still dealing with 25 years on that they never dealt with back then because they were so young. But I just did, you know, I just got into organizing mode and that was the my best coping mechanism in the thick of that first stage of grief for me but I found myself in a year down the track in the bottom of the shower bawling my eyes out and equally um, my partner at the time which happened to be my first husband was a bit like your partner (laughs) um, was a bit dismissive but didn't know he wasn't a bad person he just didn't know how to deal with me and he'd never seen me like that he'd ne- he'd always seen me as a strong capable woman who just got shit done nothing really phased me and to see me as a blubbering mess in the bottom of the shower he just looked at me and like literally turned around and left like didn't even come and help me or whatever and i remember thinking like later going oh that's not good <laughs> Yeah. So one time I think your husband should be helping you. <laughs> but I remember going like, you know, what the fuck is wrong with me? Like I should be over this. It's a year. You know, and I, it was so hard on myself and then I literally took myself off to see a counsellor for the first time and that was, you know, groundbreaking for me. And this is obviously the work that you've done, you know, that you do for people. How do you help? What would you say to people listening that, you know, maybe going through grief or they don't even realise there might be, early stages and they might be years and years down the track and still feeling like they can't talk about that person without bursting into tears. Well, I think a lot of people are frightened to go to therapy to talk about it because they're afraid that once they open the floodgates, they won't be able to stop. And, you know, that's a really common fear. But we know that, you know, all of these big emotions are temporary. So we have the peaks of it. So we might start talking about it 
or have a moment like you did at the bottom of the shower, absolutely hysterical, sobbing uncontrollably, just, you know, I've had my own moments like that. One was on the floor in the hallway at my parents' house. I mean, I don't even know how I got on the floor in the hallway, but that's where it hit me. But you didn't stay in the shower forever and I didn't stay in the hallway forever. You sort of have to just let it out and then, you know, some calm will come over you and you kind of pick yourself up again and you start to take the next literal steps forward. It's like a pressure release valve as well. So even though that's horrendous, it's good for you and you do need to release the pressure. So Absolutely. And I think Doing that in therapy can feel a little bit intimidating, particularly if you don't know the therapist, you haven't met them before, and it can feel maybe a bit scary to have to go and be that vulnerable with somebody. But I think a good therapist is going to make you feel safe and make you feel like that's the place where it's okay to do that and hold the space for you so that you can just let it go and then help you to kind of move your way through it This sounds really bad, but you're never going to get over it. There's no therapist in the world who's going to make you okay. It's that loss that's transformative. It's there forever. But what a good therapist can do is help you to, I guess, manage the emotions so that you're not falling apart at the seams all the time or not feeling like you have to hold it in, which is also really bad for you. We know that keeping all of your emotions inside actually can have disastrous physical effects. You know, you can get really sick from doing that. And the timing has to be right for you too. You know, maybe it's not in the first year. Maybe like you, the protective mechanism that works best is keeping busy and supporting others. But at some point you have to do some of that work for yourself so that you can continue to be that support for others and keep putting those footsteps forward in your own life. And, you know, I would always encourage people to go and get support, whether it's, you know, in day one, day a thousand, because I think having someone walk you through it and almost hold your hand who's removed from the situation brings a completely different perspective and just validates and normalises your experience in a way that the people close to us can't, can't you know so true it's bringing back those memories Yana of you know when I did see because I'd never seen a counselor before and um you know and the stigma associated with especially 25 years ago I think you know some people still have a stigma around it now but I you know hugely encourage people to do this for anything not just you know massive grief that we're talking about now but the key differences and the critical things for me were exactly what you talked about there around the person, you know, this counsel was removed. They didn't know any of my family members. They didn't know my mum. So she asked me questions and things about mum that I'd never been asked before. I never thought about, you know, and she's like, what, what is it that you really miss about your mum? And there were those elements for a year on. I was like, oh, I haven't really thought of that. Like these beautiful, because none of your friends or family or anyone close to you, they actually, it was like mum didn't exist. None of them wanted to bring her name up in in the fear of upsetting me. You know, so mum's birthday went past or Mother's Day and everyone just like basically was running for cover. You know, they don't want to, they don't want to talk to you about it because they're like, oh, I don't want to make Michelle cry. You know, and any friends trying to talk about stuff, they'd burst into tears and you'd burst into tears and they'd feel bad. But I'm like, actually, it's part of the process. It's okay. And so the counsellor asked me such beautiful, amazing things that, and brought that up and I'm howling, you know, and got boxes of tissues 
but she was removed as well and didn't get upset but just kept it you know held that space for me it's so important and it just um yeah it's just a beautiful thing that you can do for yourself or encourage you know someone close to you that's going through this to see a you know a counselor of some sort if they um need a little bit of encouraging because it makes a massive difference yeah absolutely and i think one of the other things as you just touched on is Talking to someone who's removed from the situation removes any of the expectation that you might have. So if you if you wanted to kind of talk to a sibling about it, you might have to be a bit careful about their response and, you know, they're going to have a completely different perspective on mum and the family dynamics and their experience is going to be completely different to yours just because we all have our own story and we all have our own perspective. And it just is someone who's there completely in your corner, ready to support you. You don't have to tread lightly. You don't have to be careful of any kind of, you know, family dynamics that might be there. Just give yourself that gift of time to explore those things, as you say, that you might not have thought of before. So I think it's well worth doing. Such good advice. And so we're talking about grief and the ongoing part of that. And I think regardless, and when we're talking about deep grief relating to death and severe sort of trauma, interestingly, obviously the last couple of years through the pandemic, most people have had some sort of trauma and grief that's gone through that, you know, whether it's the loss of their life, you know, before or loved ones through COVID, et cetera. But our lives are very different now. And so you decided to write a book around embracing change through this process and, you know, to help people. Talk to me a bit a little bit more about that because I think it's a fantastic concept. And what we're talking about now, it's very relevant, you know, in terms of you've lost someone or something or, you know, some part of your life and you you have to embrace the change that's been thrust upon you because your life is now different and you may be grieving for other stuff, but give us the premise around the book and why you wrote it and why we all need to read it. Sure. Yeah. Look, as you said, you know, COVID has definitely been a catalyst for change for so many of us, whether that's looking at new relationships and, you know, a lot of people ended relationships through COVID or began new relationships in lockdown and people have been looking at career changes, lifestyle changes, tree changes, sea changes. But for a lot of us, there can be many psychological barriers to change that might prevent us from actually taking the leap and doing the things that we really want to do. And sometimes we don't even know exactly what it is we want to do, but we might have this feeling inside that you just want something different and there's something in life that you're yearning for but you're not quite sure what it is. And sometimes there are very good reasons why we don't take the leap and why we might not adventure down that path of exploration because we might have battles with anxiety or self-esteem or we might have issues like we said with grief or imposter syndrome and I just sort of started thinking about all of these kind of psychological concepts and thinking maybe if we can break these down into bite-sized jargon-free chapters and I can share my own experiences with many of these things as well as my professional experience in working with people that maybe it would help people 
to embrace their own changes. And at least it doesn't have to mean we're going to pack, you have to pack up and move to the other side of the country. But all I really want is for people to sort of start exploring their own wants and needs and give themselves that gift of trying things out. You know, one of the chapters is about passion. And I think for a lot of people, we think you're just supposed to have a very clear picture of where you want to go and what you want to do. You know, your career is a bit like mine. You're finding yourself now at this age doing something totally different to what you were doing 10 years ago. And how brilliant is that? Yeah, but I stumbled across it, right? It's not like, to your point, a passion. I started pottery because I wanted to make my own dinner set, like literally. (laughs) Which is amazing. And we can all do that. We don't have to be stereotypically passionate, you know, type A personality people to go out and start whole new careers or find new areas of interest. I think we all need to rediscover that childhood curiosity that we all have when we're little, where everything's exciting and full of wonder and we don't know everything and we don't think we know everything and we're genuinely interested in learning more. So I think if we can expand our worlds a little bit just to try new things, go to a a pottery class, go to a, you know, wine and painting class and you might find you hate painting but you love learning about wine and maybe that will take you to a sommelier course or you just never know but life's too short just to be stagnant and stuck in the same old thing, especially if it's not serving you in any way and not driving and motivating you on a personal level. So true. You you are speaking all the words that, um, you know, I love to hear, Yana. It's You are such an interesting, amazing human. It's just a delight to chat to you and I want to meet you in real life. <laughs> so I need to come Definitely. to Melbourne, take you out for a lovely wine and paint. Maybe we could do it together. <laughs> I would love that. I've never done it, but it's on my list. I want to do it. Yeah, well, well, if you have a 10-week-year-old baby, maybe that's a good excuse to uh, leave (laughs) Bubba at home and we can escape. (laughs) I do love the sound of that. (laughs) It's just absolutely divine. You've given so many amazing tips and things for people to think about today. And um, I, uh, yeah, encourage everyone to buy your brand new book. It isn't called Embracing Change. And, Yana, it's just yeah, divine to chat to you. Thank you again for coming on the podcast. Um, You're a delight. Thanks, Michelle. Right back at you. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you and getting to know you more. And your story is, is one that I completely connect with. So thank you for sharing all of that with me too. Well, there you have it. Wasn't that an incredible conversation? I hope you enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed bringing it to you. If you did like it, can I ask a small favour? Please rate and review on your listening platform for me. I know everyone asks this, but it seriously makes a difference to help get these conversations out in the world and makes all the hard work and effort I put into this for you all the more worthwhile. And until next time, if you have one question you'd like to ask me, hit me up on my socials or jump on my website, michellejcox.com.